the first ever episode of ACA podcast. My name is Alicia Ying and I will be your host today. This year I am ACA's host undergraduate liaison and second year cognitive science and math of computation major. With me I have two of the five founders of UCLA's American Chinese Association, Keith Lee and Valerie So. Keith Lee is a photography professor at Foothill College in Los Altos, California since 1996, and in 2014 was a human rights education fellow at Stanford University. He teaches classes in the practice of photography as well as the history of photography. He continues his interest in documentary photography and the visual arts. Valerie So is an Asian American studies professor at San Francisco State University and is the fourth generation Asian American. In her free time, she's a filmmaker. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. I, I'm, I didn't realize this was the, the first episode, so it's kind of fun that we get to be the, the inaugural guests. <laughs> oh yeah, this is a great idea. Really, really great idea for ACA to pursue awareness and, and you know, spreading the part of the history too of ACA. Yeah, ACA has a YouTube channel and we have various social media pages, but this year I really wanted to see what we can do in terms of podcasting and trying out different mediums of social media to spread awareness and also grow our voice and educate other undergraduate students. So Obviously, there's been a really big difference from when D was founded in 1982. Are, what inspired you to create American Chinese Association at UCLA? Do you remember, Keith? Well, yeah. <laughs> kind of a long story for me. I, you know, I actually came to UCLA from UC Berkeley, where I spent my first two years as an undergraduate. It was there that I took many Asian American studies courses, and I learned more about the experiences and history of Asians as they came to America and the struggles they still face, you know, as a people, whether you're a citizen or not. It was an eye-opening experience for me. The first event I consciously attended was a celebration of International Working Women's Day. I met people there who invited me to join in the activities of the Asian Student Union, which is a, a student organization on campus. And little did I know that besides them, they had a ping pong table that was in their office and a place for me to park my bike safely because I rode my bike to, to school. And then I found out they were involved with other social and political issues of the day. And this included things that were happening on campus, such as departmental status, a struggle for department, departmental status for ethnic studies, a, a demand to rehire certain professors and for the university administration to offer tenured positions. And this would make the department much more stable and, and have a future. So these things were starting to uh, come into my mind. And I thought a lot about that and it had a great effect on me. But I also learned that there were other interesting issues that came up that were headed by or participated by the Asian Student Union, which I'll just refer to as ASU. Uh, and there were issues such as the loss and disintegration of of Asian communities in San Francisco's Chinatown and Manila Town and Japantown at that time. This occurred through imminent evictions of buildings that housed mainly elderly 
people. And so I participated in a lot of these demonstrations against this kind of urban redevelopment uh, that was destroying these communities and their way of life. In particular, the effort to save the International Hotel or the I Hotel uh, in San Francisco's Chinatown, Manila Town, it really had a great effect on me. I saw how hundreds and thousands of people from all walks of life, nationalities and ethnicities, uh, come together and organize around this important social issue. There were also issues at the same time around supposed reverse discrimination in college admissions at UC Davis. I was learning more about these issues, getting involved, and made me see how you didn't really have to accept the way things were. And it's possible to enact social change as a large group, bit by bit, of course. I think we also have much to learn from other communities of color, because we often face a lot of the same issues. Most recently, of course, think of movements such as Black Lives Matter that have brought greater awareness to social inequities to the betterment of all oppressed peoples. So when I did transfer to UCLA, I did see a need for a club or organization that could address the experiences of students of Asian descent uh, who grew up in America. Much I noticed that one of the questions you had posed initially was, what generation am I? And I think that's a really important question. Because, you know, on my father's side, I probably somewhere around second or third, depending on how you categorize that. My great grandfather came to the United States first, then my grandfather, and both were born in China. Then my father came third through Angel Island Immigration Center. So the actual generational counting, as it were, would make me possibly third or second, depending on how you count that. But on the other hand, my experiences are uh, that my mother was born here and was raised in the city uh, of San Francisco compared to my father, who was raised in China in a village or more, more likely a, a hamlet, this tiny, tiny little uh, uh, residential area. And so I've had the experiences of both. And I don't feel like I ever fit into any one of the particular generations as is typically described as far as experiences. So I was born here in, in the United States, in San Francisco, coincidentally. And so I grew up playing baseball, playing football, you know, loving rock music. I mean, those kinds of experiences I didn't really notice at UCLA. And that was one of the things I thought was important was to find an organization that would address those needs the experiences of someone who's been in America for a while rather than a first or second generation student who actually still spoke uh, you know, their, their mother tongue. I didn't speak any Chinese. So that certainly kept me uh, from joining any of the other organizations. So I decided to start an organization and met up with a lot of resistance actually from, believe it or not, the Asian American Studies Center, some of the other Asian clubs, Filipino Samahang, Chinese Student Association, Nikkei Student Union. Those organizations were all under an umbrella uh, called Asian Coalition. And I don't know if they're still uh, in existence, but it was an umbrella organization and they had held a lot of sway. And I think they felt that if I started another organization and didn't just join up with the uh, Chinese Student Association, which would have been difficult because they were speaking Chinese. They had come from Taiwan or Hong Kong and had a lot of different, more common experiences than I did. And I had been here in the U.S. my entire life. So the things that I was used to, the things I love, the things I like to do were was significantly different. So I decided to start an organization. And uh, to do that, you have to get signatures. And, you know, they can't stop you if you get enough signatures. And I happened to uh, be in an art class and I met up 
with someone who was also from Northern Cal, Oakland specifically, and who was Asian American and had, I thought, had similar kinds of experiences being in Southern California as well. And that person was Valerie So. So she was one of the uh, first signatories to the uh, petition. And so after gathering, I forget, maybe you needed eight or 10, I don't recall, but, you know, and I would hang around the Asian American Studies Center trying to get signatures. And the other signature, signatory was Kathy Shintaku, who, who was a, a fellow student that I was commuting uh, to campus with at that time. So, sorry, that's a long-winded story, but that's sort of how we got started. What prompted me to initiate this with Valerie and, and my other uh, colleagues. That's really inspiring that to hear a story where you are, you see that there's something that is missing and you take steps to try to fill in the gaps. And I think it's something that a lot of us should probably do if we see some things going on in our world today that need change. And even though it might seem like a big leap and we might encounter obstacles, finding a solution, it seems that like a small step taken by us might end up inspiring others and blossoming into something bigger. So once you were able to gather signatures and create this club, what was your experience founding it? Did you experience any further interactions with APC or Asian Pacific Coalition during that time? Or was it difficult to gather other students to join your organization? I think the first couple of quarters were a little difficult. And I think you'd have to remember uh, way back then, the way that you would recruit people was not to have a sign or a table on Bruin Walk as much as it was posting flyers surreptitiously wherever you, you know, the little tear out paper ones with your phone number. And that was a very slow and painful process for somebody to actually look at that and call up the number and then find out more that way. So the, the age of uh, email, the internet and all of that has been, I think, great for organizing. Yeah, this is, of course, a way long before social media. So, and there were no smartphones or anything like that. So definitely it was phone calling or talking to people in person or, yeah, it was, it was very challenging in that way. I do want to um, emphasize what Keith said about why we felt like there was a lack of an organization for American-born Chinese, right? So which is why ACA came about, because um, like he said, the Chinese Student Union was, yeah, they conducted all their meetings in Chinese, in Mandarin, I believe. I think it was Mandarin, probably, right? maybe some Canto, but either whatever it was, I don't speak it because I was born here also. And, you know, not saying that there weren't folks who were immigrants in ACA. Uh, one of our first presidents, of course, Roger was uh, from Taiwan. I think he's Taiwanese, right? Roger, what's Roger's last name? I don't even remember. <laughs> and for what it seemed to me, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm when we started out. And we really quickly had a pretty strong core group of folks who wanted to, to be involved. You know, I mean, maybe it was only like 20 or so people, but they were all really, really, really dedicated. <laughs> so, so it was really great in that way. And I think that for me, it was nice because just like, kind of like Keith, you know, I mean, I was hanging out with Sama Hong, I was hanging out with NSU and I was always thinking, why, why is there no Chinese group? Why is that? <laughs> Not that I don't have anything in common with Sama Hong or, you know, the Japanese. Japanese American students, but I did feel like it would be nice if we could focus on experiences of the Chinese in the U.S. And also back then, there was the folks who had 
been born in the U.S. oftentimes were like myself or Keith. You know, their grandparents were the ones who came over. Or in my case, I think my great-grandparents were the ones who came over. So our experiences were really, really different from folks who had just immigrated, right? First generation. And of course, there was no internet back then. So we couldn't, we American-born folks could not access Asian pop culture as readily as you guys can. We can't go on the internet and look for like clips and stuff or whatever, or talk to people overseas. It was a lot more expensive to fly back and forth. We really felt rooted quite a bit in the US. And it was harder for us to relate to people at that time who had just come over. Nowadays, it's, feel, you know, people are a lot more transnational, right? There are people coming back and forth all the time, or you might not even have literally traveled to the Asia, but you might be really connected to Asian culture. There's also a lot more people who are immigrants than there are American-born Asians at this moment in history. Whereas in, when Keith and I were younger, it was probably the other way around, because A, there were a lot less Asian-Americans, period. I want to say 0.5% uh, of the US population was Asian in 1960, and now it's almost 7%. So more than 10 times as many Asian people live in the US now as did when me and Keith were growing up back, back in the dark ages, right, Keith? <laughs> so, you know, it's really a, a really different thing, you know. It was important for us to, to think about how we could talk about our experiences here in the US. Yeah, and not, again, you know, not to, in, not to invalidate the experiences of folks who are newer immigrants, but it was just, we felt it was hard for us at that point to involve ourselves in the CSA because they were very much about folks who were just immigrated and they weren't speaking a language that we understood. If I could just say, less people think we were against the first generation or second generation uh, immigrant students, it was really a case of what Valerie is saying. The language was a barrier, but this is not to say that there weren't attempts for our or our growing organization to have intercultural meetings uh, and events with the other groups. I remember uh, the Chinese Student Association inviting us to their volleyball tournament which is great, except for we got slaughtered. I think you were terrible. that was really, <laughs> I think that's really, really nice. I mean, I'm, I think, uh, like Valerie said, it has changed a lot. The, the, the intermix, the, the exchange of ideas, experiences are, are so different. And, uh, you know, I really think that's great that ACA is also embracing that as well. You have Vietnamese students of, uh, students of Vietnamese descent. You have all sorts of people that are involved around ACA. And, you know, that's a dream to come true for me. I feel like one of your leaders a few couple of years ago was South Asian, right? I think the person who produced the cultural night. Do you remember that, Keith? Her, she was, oh, that's right. She was, I, her yeah. parent, one of her parents was South Asian, one was Chinese that's or right. something. That's right. Yeah, and that was cool. Yeah, so, so you know, you got mixed parentage too. And so yeah. find a, a, a place, you know, this is yeah. this wonderful. But I mean, I think I think I said this when we came to your event a few years ago, that I hadn't really kept up with ACA all over these years. And so to find out that your group is like, maybe one of the biggest student orgs on campus, right? If not the biggest student org on campus, like what? I, you know, I think I said at the meeting, you know, it's like discovering that I have like 500 grandchildren. <laughs> it's like, wow. So, because I mean, I don't know about you, Keith, but I never thought that, that would, I thought we'd kind of be like, maybe we'd be lucky if we were sort of modestly successful, right? <laughs> yeah, couldn't imagine that uh, that ACA would become this umbrella and embrace a lot of, you know, diverse yeah. interests. I mean, you've got lion dance, you know, that's amazing, all within ACA. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. ACA has 
grown a lot. I believe we definitely are one of the bigger organizations at UCLA, and we usually have over 500 active members rolling in their membership apps every year, and it's always very exciting to see. And also a lot of the staff members in ACA are of uh, like mixed heritage, and it's very cool to see that not only people of Asian American descent are joining but also non-Asians. You know, we really value the diversity that we get. We're very accepting of any applicant who does apply to become a member in ACA. And so it seems that once you went through the process of creating ACA, other organizations were more accepting of you. Was this the case outside of the club environment? Did you experience any sort of negative stereotypes or racism in your classes or was it generally very accepting even during the 1980s? I feel like you know even though Los Angeles was very diverse and at that time and still nowadays there's still there was a lot there was a very conservative streak to UCLA and probably still Southern California. So there certainly were racist incidents, not necessarily directed towards like Chinese Americans or Asian Americans, but I remember there was a protest that some of the Latino students did. Do you remember this, Keith? They did a sit-in somewhere and some fraternity brothers drove by and threw tortillas at them. No, no, I don't recall that. Yeah, so stuff like that, like, whoa, it's just like blatant, right? So I think that ACA has always kind of been, or, you know, we always sort of thought of it as a way to not only just like celebrate a culture, but also to sort of help Chinese Americans and Asian Americans, you know, be more, have their voices heard, right? And have more uh, political and social influence and not have to face these kind of discrimination or racism. So, you know, working towards like social justice was super important, I, I think, especially, I mean, back then there was, <laughs> yeah, it was very important for, for us, I think, so as well as having a place, you know, that just to be like your social club. Yeah. I think that last year, AC has started to take a bigger stance towards political activism, especially with the Asian hate crimes and Black Lives Matter and many other big movements that came out last year. But before that, they weren't as political heavy and a lot of people just saw us as a cultural and a social organization to hang out at. Do you think that ACA should be an organization that takes a more political stance and has a bigger voice for the Asian American community? Or do you think that it's something that should remain as more of a cultural and social organization for the Asian American community to latch onto without having. I'm only speaking from like the the time that we went to see your show. The performance was about Vincent Chin, right? Which is like a pretty politically loaded subject. So I mean, I think that you guys are approaching it, even though it may not feel like you're like literally going to get people out to vote. You know, you're still talking about political and social issues in that way. And I think what happens too is when you work together as a group, then you understand the power of mass action, right? How people working together are stronger than people individually. So you can hopefully mobilize that to work for common good. 
And, you know, maybe common good is like having a really fun party. Sure, that's fine. But, but we're also like in really dire times now, right? We got the pandemic. We got all these Asians, like Asian hate crimes. You know, we have like uh, attacks on democracy. So I feel like, you know, ACA is really kind of positioned really well because you guys already have like this dedicated core of people, which is actually a pretty big core, who, who know how to work with each other, who trust each other. Um, not everybody's going to agree with necessarily like whatever you might think of as like a political position, right? But, but at least you can educate each other and listen to each other too, which is, I think, really great. Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. I, I think a point worth remembering too is just by being a member in ACA is a political act. You know, it's yep. a recognition you know, of the experiences. And I was really elated to see last year, the ACA came out with that support statement of Black Lives Matter. That was like fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because you're not saying, oh, we all are just Americans, right? Blank Americans. We just fell into this melting pot. You're not, you're saying, no, we also are Chinese American, right? We also have, or Asian American or whatever, or we also appreciate Asian American and Chinese Americans. And so we are um, not pretending that we're just our sort of generic so-called Americans. You know, Asian Americans are Americans as well. So yeah, I mean, otherwise, why would you join a group that's called Association of Chinese Americans? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we or if ACA for the future needs to situate itself as a political organization or even become yeah. more political necessarily, although I think it would be a good idea. But what's more important is that I think ACA puts themselves out there in every aspect of society, whether it's political, social, cultural. I think that's, that's an important thing, just to be a part of America, be a part of a, a community uh, that's trying to build you know, a better society in some way in each in your in each in everyone's way yeah i mean as you leave ucla hopefully not too soon uh, and go out into the the wider world there's a lot of opportunities for you to continue the the so-called work of aca you know the ties you've built and, and the experiences you've had together I, I really love the alumni aspect of aca that's just amazing yeah Personally, when I saw the Black Lives Matter post from ACA, I was pleasantly surprised as during that time, I was not as actively involved in ACA and that, like seeing that like Asian American stand in solidarity made me like want to be a part of ACA and also support other organizations and groups as well as ourselves. And then also kind of grow ACA more. And I also, like, like you mentioned, it's very um, easy to uh, find organizations or ways to continue the works of ACA in like past ACA. So after you graduated college, did you take any stances or like any political actions to kind of support the Asian community? For the Asian American community? That's a really good question. I want to say, I'm going to back up a little bit. So when I grew up in a very white suburb, right? Even though I was in San Francisco Bay Area, it was pretty white. And so when I came to UCLA, that was maybe like the first time I really hung out with a lot of Asian people. And I really, and I took a lot of Asian American studies classes, right? And we were at ACA and I worked for Pacific Ties, right? The, the newsletter. And so all of those things really changed my perspective. At that time, there was no Asian American studies major at UCLA. 
And in fact, as Keith said, you know, just like at Berkeley, there was not even an Asian American studies department. There was just a program. So they were not a granting department. They couldn't give you a degree. So nowadays, now there is, right? You can get an Asian American studies degree. So, but so, but, you know, so having that experience where I all of a sudden learned a lot more about being Asian American and Chinese American and understanding the history and the struggles of Asian Americans really changed the way that I think about myself. And, you know, I mean, I now I teach in Asian American studies. So, yeah, I think it really definitely was a super important moment for me in my life. Yeah. I, I think the importance too of this awareness and and how people could educate one another is important. Like Valerie said, I think, you know, I got a lot of my grounding by taking Asian American studies courses. And as you know, this past year, you know, California is mandating that for, as having to take an ethnic studies course as part of the requirements. And I think it's another great move. I was recently on a ethnic studies hiring committee and I just couldn't believe it. I mean, these, the, the candidates were amazing. The experiences they had, the degrees and, and everything. But I just said, that's exactly what needs to continue. You need a mechanism such as ethnic studies until everything is equal in the world. You really need some way to perpetuate that, to promote the contributions of Asians and of course, other ethnic peoples to America. That's so important. Yeah, otherwise the history and the story of the US is incomplete. If you um, ignore the experiences of people of color. Yeah. I recently took a few classes regarding the histories of people of color and after actually genuinely learning about those histories and seeing how many gaps there are in U.S. education, I realized that it's important for us to be more educated about the past, not only from the perspective of a Caucasian American, middle class American, but also of other stories of people of other backgrounds entering America. And it's really nice to hear that both of you have been involved in activities that promote understanding and educating the histories of people of color. And as professors who have an Asian American background and with all the Asian American hate going on last year, have you guys experienced or heard of any stories of colleagues who experienced negative responses from students? From students? Or from like, yeah, students who might not be like, who may be uh, frustrated with the COVID situation. Well, luckily I teach in Asian American studies. So I don't, um, you know, most of the people who are drawn to those classes are, are have a pretty progressive uh, point of view in the first place. <laughs> and also I'm at San Francisco State. So, you know, same, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely been historically, of course, there's been a lot of resistance to that. But even in my own personal teaching experience, when I taught elsewhere, not at San Francisco State, there's some resistance. Yeah, like people don't understand the importance mostly non-Asian people don't understand the importance of studying Asian American studies, right? Or learning about Asian American stories. So I think, I think gradually it is changing though. So we're unfortunately, we're right now we're in this crazy transition period where everybody's just like losing their minds, but I'm hoping that it'll settle down. We'll see. <laughs> well, I often think of that, the example of the, the building of the uh, transcontinental railroad across the United States. And there's always that famous picture that comes up of the joining of the, the uh, two uh, railroads, right, at Promontory Point. Just a great historical photo. You know, and I know, 
that a lot of Chinese and the Irish were involved in creating the railroad. So if you were to see that photo in a history book, you wouldn't know that the Chinese were involved in the same way. You would not see a picture of a Chinese laborer in that photo. Uh, there are some other photos that do show them, but pretty much that visibility, I think is sort of key to what needs to happen here in the future is that you need to see Asian faces. You need to see that so that history can support the fact that Asians have always been there, have always contributed, and are, as, as Valerie said, are, have made uh, history in America as well. So it's not complete without looking at the contributions of many, many different peoples. And I think it gives you a fuller and, and richer picture, of course, uh, of what this country is about. Yeah. I definitely agree with both of you. It's very nice to hear that you don't have any personal stories of anything truly hateful from students and that hopefully everything will settle down soon and as like media is educating people more people will learn to become more accepting and be open to learning about the full history of U.S. and around the world rather than the very censored version we see in textbooks. Luckily, we have media now, which allows us to learn from people who are very different from us and kind of educate ourselves. In the past, what were some ways, methods that you used to try to educate others who had different backgrounds from you and create a better community? One way for me has been to interact uh, with students in my history of photography class, which is really about representation, is about visibility. And that's one way that I think that students are more interested uh, in what has happened before, why they've been excluded or why other uh, groups have come to the forefront. I think that's one area that I, I have found to be a particular interest for myself. And also it just makes me happy to know that students are curious about these things. I mean, after all, the, the jobs of students and, and faculty, you know, really is to question a lot of assumptions about what you've seen and what you've heard and what you've read and to be a little more sort of a critical, what is that, a critical consumer of media and images. I think even though social media has been very helpful, just going back to looking at images or facts and kind of questioning it and seeing what there, like what more there is to learn and building a more vivid picture and understanding the world that way is also very important. So from your experience, what are some things that have, that you are proud to see change within the Asian American community, community whether it's people becoming more accepting or just educating themselves in the Asian American community? I think there's just, uh, uh, with social media and of course the YouTube and stuff, there's just, it's just amazing to see stuff that's getting on earth that was always there, but now perhaps is getting a little more light shined on it. Like most recently, uh, you may have heard of the Kim sisters or the Kim, sing Kim sister singers, a group in the forties uh, and fifties of the last century were a fairly prominent singing act. And I think those kinds of things, uh, you can not only be proud of, not that I had anything to do with it, but the, the idea that there were people fighting, struggling, 
performing, you know, doing whatever they do for a long time. And it's just great to see it come out. And we can reassess history, you know, from that vantage point. Uh, I mean, we see the visibility of Asians in all sorts of media, right? Whether it's newscasters, mm -hmm. uh, actors, musicians, performing artists, even visual artists. And I think that needs to happen even more so. I mean, it seems to be a, a growing avenue for filmmakers too, that I've noticed a lot more Asian uh, film festivals, more independent films being made by Asians, really having to deal with the Asian American experience in some way. And I, I've, I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, I just saw today that they're making a new version of uh, The Last Airbender on Netflix, right? A series. And you know, the, la the, the movie version, of course, everybody really hated because they cast all white people to play all the characters in Airbender. So this one, the cast is all Asian. So I think it's partially, okay, so the cynical side of me says it's partially because Hollywood knows that Asian Americans will spend money on movies that have them in it. But the other reason is maybe people are getting a little more aware that, yeah, it's it's important to show like all these different types of folks and we're, we don't only have to just have like Scarlett Johansson or, you know, play every character because Asian Americans want to see themselves in movies. You know, Crazy Rich Asians is a really good example of that, but there are plenty of other ones, you know, to all the boys I ever loved, right? All that stuff, always be my maybe, all these things that happen are happening now that have happened maybe in the past three, four years. And so that, that casting for Airbender is just kind of an example of that, how because Asian Americans have voted with their pocketbooks, right? They buy tickets. And also from there's activism and pressure from the community. There was a lot of protest about people, when people, when Hollywood cast what were supposedly Asian characters with white actors. So, and Airbender being one of the examples, the movie. And I think that that's being changed and that's great. It's, it's kind of neat. Yeah, and I think the stories and experiences of, of Asians in America is coming out. I mean, there's comedians like Ali Wong. Uh, there's a, a couple of others whose names I, I cannot recall at this moment. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. Ronnie Chang. There you go, Ronnie Chang. Yeah, I mean, he's, although he's he's Singaporean technically, but still, <laughs> or the guy on Saturday Night Live, right? Yeah. Wong Yang. Yeah. And I mean, who's the who's the hottest baseball player right now? The guy from the Angels, right? Shoyotani. So he's Japanese, not Japanese American, but still, mm -hmm. you know. So part of that is, like I said, just because the demographics are that there's a lot more Asians living in this country, but even non-Asian people are also, um, you know, they they don't mind. They like seeing Asian people in movies. It's not a bad thing, right? So Hollywood is sometimes the last, the last to learn. <laughs> So, but a lot of this does come directly from people protesting and complaining, you know, organizations and, and groups. And so it's not just, it didn't just happen because Hollywood is like kind-hearted. It happened because they were boycotts and complaints and because Asians started to look at movies that had themselves in it and to support them. There were, there were a protest in the uh, late seventies around Charlie. Oh, yeah. And, you know, some of these movies that came back, even though they were from the past, they needed to be really, uh, you know, kind of manned by Asian actors more mm -hmm. so than they ever have been. But uh, yeah. yes, like Valerie said, I think it's it's not just recently. There's been a lot of movement over over decades. Yeah. Uh, and I'd be interested to, to learn more about some of those efforts that have taken place. You know, under the wire, nobody really knows about it. Mm -hmm. And it's just regular people going out there and, you know, trying to uh, make it a better world for Asians. Yeah, Asian Americans have always been involved in fighting back against discrimination and racism. It's just something that the mainstream doesn't is not aware of and doesn't really uh, cover. So yeah, so that's why it's important for us 
as Asian Americans to kind of speak up about it, right? And that's why it's important to have curriculum in schools, like in the high schools and elementary schools that, yeah. that educate folks about this and just tell them all these examples, so. Mm -hmm. It's definitely really nice to see good media re representation rather than the stereotypical like nerd or like basic um, docile Asian American stereotypes being perpetuated. I think it's really inspiring a lot of young people these days. It's good that I like there's more and more content creation regarding Asian Americans and just people of color in general rather than directors casting Caucasian actors to play these roles making it less authentic. And it's also nice to know that Asian Americans have always been fighting behind media even though they aren't always like portrayed by media. So if you could go back to the past, is there any actions you would take to possibly perpetuate this movement and create a more welcoming America for Asian Americans or any minorities? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I believe oh one is the, the wish of most people, uh, and if I could quote Martin Luther King Jr., that in the final analysis it is for one to be recognized for the strength of their character, right, and their contributions to helping make the world a better place, you know, and this includes efforts at social justice as well. But I just, if I could take a step backwards about the performing artists and the actors we've been talking about having more roles filled by Asian actors, I'd also like to expand that, uh, and there have been movements towards that. Uh, it's not colorblind, but it's now to have Asian actors play King Lear, to play uh, other roles that are not necessarily Asian American based. If you look at uh, some of the, uh, the plays that occur in the UK, they have some really wonderful, I forget, it's not role blind, but you, you have actors and actresses that are not of that ethnicity playing roles because it's the role and not based on their appearance. And I think that's a, another step forward that could uh, happen and should happen. Now that like we thought about what like the past from here on out is there anything you would like to see change even more or like a step that we can take to creating a more welcoming America for all minorities? Well I mean I think what's happening now is kind of important you know you know, just recognizing that there have been inequalities throughout history in the United States and not pretending that we're a perfect country. It's not a bad thing to recognize that there has been discrimination and racism in the past. And then you can acknowledge it and think of ways to rectify it. So even though it is really hard right now because we are going through a lot of changes in this country, I think it's necessary changes. I think it's important to, to see that some people do have very, very racist ideas and they need, they need to be called out on. You know, as opposed to just pretending everything's fine, as opposed to thinking that we're in a post-racial society, which is not accurate as far as I'm concerned. And I don't think I would like to be in a post-racial society because that sort of denies the individual elements of different people's cultures. I'm hoping that we can come through and really make this uh, a positive outcome and not just sort of self-destruct. That would be great. I, I think it's all the different cultures that have come together to make America. And, and once that's truly recognized and not considered a melting pot or we all kind yeah. of sin and be the same, uh, 
then I think the, the United States will come out of it a, a lot stronger. And the stuff really has come out in the public discourse and not necessarily just sort of uh, lashing out at other people's. I mean, the recent bill that's being uh, put together about reparations for descendants of slaves from the Civil War, I think is, is amazing. You know, there are logistics to that, but that's not even that important. If you think back to the reparations that was uh, won or achieved by Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II, that took 40 years to do. So I think it's, it's important for the, the public and maybe even ACA to be discussing these things. How do they impact your life? What if we were to recognize fully, honestly, that Black slaves and their descendants have been uh, severely oppressed? They've had a more difficult time. They've not had equal opportunities. And that could actually be rectified. That could be acknowledged. And I think it isn't just the money that might result from something like this, but just the idea that it's been recognized. And I think that would you know, bring a lot towards social unity in this country. And I think also part of a part of that is to for Asians and Asian Americans to recognize their own participation in some of these systems of oppression. You know, think about what kind of anti-blackness do we have in the Asian American community and how can we call that out, you know, because then we can fix it or work on fixing it. But if you just say, oh no, no, that doesn't exist. Asians are not racist, right? I mean, I feel like it's important to recognize and acknowledge that that there is a lot of uh, anti-blackness in the Asian American community. Very good point, very good point. Yeah, so there's a quote that I saw that really kind of resonates with me, especially after listening to both of you talk. It's by Carol J. Smith, and he says, more people would learn from their mistakes if they weren't so busy denying them. And I definitely think that if people were open to learning more and educating themselves rather than staying ignorant, it would definitely lead to a more peaceful, vivid, and welcoming America. With that, it was really great talking to both of you. I learned a lot and I was very like glad that I had the opportunity to speak to both of you. Thank you so much to our audience for making it this far into our episode. Make sure to follow AC Bruins on Instagram and to visit Association of Chinese Americans on Facebook and to stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you so much. It was very fun. Yes, thanks, Alicia. It's great. Mm -hmm.